like for you to turn your Bible to the book of Colossians, and that's where we're going to uh, be tonight. Colossians is our main main passage of Scripture, Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Be looking at that and uh, covering some other scriptures along with it, but this is our main uh, text tonight. It's uh, great to uh, be able to uh, be with you and to share this time in the gospel with you and to share this time in God's word with you. Uh, if you drove in tonight from down south, you no doubt got into some inclement weather. <laughs> we did too. So we saw the opening in the clouds back this way. We said, well, it not, may not be raining at church. So it'd, be, it'd be okay. Anyway, we got the portico out there. We can drive through that and get in and out anyway. <clears throat> Follow along with me uh, as we read. I want to read these uh, verses in Colossians and, and uh, then uh, begin some expositions tonight. And I've t entitled this message, The Gospel Truth. And it, the title comes from the text itself, as you will see. <clears throat> so follow along with me as we read. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to you. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And that's where I get the title from, right there. Which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing, uh, constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. Our beloved fellow bond servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So that's our text tonight. And I want us to take special note of some things. I want to uh, uh, try to give you uh, seven aspects of this gospel truth tonight need to bear with me. Some of it may seem detached, but all these, uh, all these uh, parts of the gospel are given to us in this passage, and all these aspects of the gospel are right here in this passage, and I want to cover them tonight. Now, Scripture describes the gospel in several different ways. I'm going to give these to you quickly, and you can write them in uh, on those blank spaces, and if you miss some, you can look at my notes afterward and, and fill it in. Now the first one is in Acts 20, 24 and the gospel is described as the gospel of the grace of God. In Romans 1, 9 it's called the gospel of his son. In Romans 15, 16 it's called the gospel of God. In 1 Corinthians 9, 12 it's called the gospel of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it's called the gospel of the glory of Christ. In Ephesians 6.15, it's called the gospel of peace. In Revelation 14.6, it's called the eternal gospel. And then in our text tonight, in Colossians 1.5, it's called the word of truth. Then the last one is in Ephesians 1.13, the gospel is called the message of truth. So the gospel is spoken of in several different ways. It's interesting to go back 
and to just look up those passages and read a few verses in context, it'll give you a different perspective on the gospel. Well, we've always called the gospel one thing, but you can see that the gospel is called by many different names. And I've just given you some of those just now. A summary of the historical content of the gospel is given to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now, if you want a definition of the gospel in a nutshell, this is it in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. I'm going to read that passage to you. This tells us a, a concise definition of the gospel. This gives us the gospel in just a few words. If someone were to ask you what is the gospel, you could show them quickly in just a few words. Now listen to this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, the Apostle Paul was telling the church at Corinth, this is an important thing that I'm telling you, and I'm telling it to you first. Of first importance, here's what you need to know. And he tells them about the gospel. Now, here's the brief definition of the gospel. The uh, gospel in a nutshell, as we would call it. And here it is, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. So there is a three-word definition of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Well, we would normally include another aspect of that, and say that death also involves life, and so we would say it's the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now that's the gospel in a nutshell. That is an abbreviated definition of the gospel, and it comes right straight from Scripture. So if someone were to say to you, what is the gospel? You could say, well, a, a brief definition is given to us here in 1 Corinthians 15. It involves the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, this does not include everything pertaining to the gospel. There's more to it than, than just these three words or four, or four words, as we're going to see uh, later on. A Christian should respond to the gospel in several ways. I'm just going to list several ways we, we should respond to the gospel and you might want to jot these down and look at them later. Jot down, jot down the reference about the gospel. But here's how we, uh, the believer should respond to the gospel. Number one, we should proclaim it. In Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going about all Galilee teaching, their, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Number two, we should defend it. In Philippians 1.16, Paul said, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Number three, we should work hard to advance it. In Philippians 1.27, it says, With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And number four, we should pursue the fellowship we share with others who believe it. In Philippians 1, 3 through 5, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel. We should pursue the fellowship of other people who share in the gospel. He says, he talks about the participation of the gospel. Just the mere evidence of you being here tonight says, I want to share in the participation of the gospel 
with other believers. That's what that means. Number five, we should be ready to suffer for it. In 2 Timothy 1, 8, uh, Paul says, But join me in the suffering of the gospel according to the power of God. Number six, we should not hinder it. In 1 Corinthians 9, 12, in context, it's, it's talking about uh, Christian uh, liberties and Christian freedom. And this is an interesting one to me because we can use our freedom to hinder the gospel. Listen to what Paul says. Nevertheless, we do not use this right or this, re or this freedom. He's referring, referring to our Christian liberty. Do not use this Christian liberty, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So we can use our Christian liberty to hinder the gospel. Number seven, we should not be ashamed of it. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Number eight, we should realize the power of it. Paul told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. This wonderful gospel is the reason for Paul's thanksgiving expressed in Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Now, I want us to look at the salutation of this letter briefly. I don't have time to, to develop the writer and the place and the time and the, and, uh, the geography of it. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 quickly and then get into uh, verse 3. Paul gave his typical introduction to the letter. This is his regular salutation that he would give in his letter. He simply says, Paul. Paul is writing this letter. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy is with him. Uh, Paul is in prison. Uh, this is one of the prison epistles. Paul was a, his good friend that had stayed with him and helped him. Timothy is with him. He's called his brother. And he's writing this to the church at Colossae, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Did you know that if you're a believer, you're a saint? You don't, you don't have to wait for, uh, for, uh, for, for, what was the saint's name you preached about this morning, Mike? My mind went blank. Mother Teresa. Wasn't that you this morning? Or was it somebody else up here? <laughs> you remember your sermon this morning? <laughs> you don't have to be declared a saint by an ecclesiastical authority. See what Paul is, how Paul is addressing them to the saints and faithful brethren. Isn't that something? And he says, I just want God's uh, grace on you, God's unmerited favor, uh, God's blessing on you, grace and peace from God our Father. So that's how he begins, talking to the church. He just wants the best for the church. And he wants the church to grow and mature and be a uh, mature church in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. I want us to get in now to what I've called the gospel truth. I want to look at seven aspects of this gospel truth. I'm going to begin at verse 3. Look at what it says. For we give thanks to God our Father, of the, uh, God and God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Let's talk about uh, this faith tonight as part of, uh, as part of the gospel. An aspect of the gospel. Faith in Christ means true biblical saving faith. Faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if you have another translation, uh, I usually use a NASB translation, New American Standard, and it says, it gives us a definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Remember when Stephen, Stephen preached a couple of weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 11? Gave us a definition of faith. And in verse 1, uh, it says, Now faith is 
the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you have a King James Version, it will say faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The, Christian, the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible says faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. I like the colorful language here in this particular verse of the King James language. The King James Version, it says it is substance and evidence. Faith is assurance and conviction. Faith is substance and evidence. Faith is reality and proof. What is given to us here in, in this passage. So when, it, when the, the passage talks about uh, hearing of your faith in Christ Jesus, it is talking about saving faith. Now, saving faith is carefully defined in the Scripture and needs to be understood because there is a thing that is called dead faith. It is defined for us in the Bible. There is such a thing as dead faith. A large passage of Scripture devoted to it in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I'm not going to take time to read all of it, but this passage of Scripture includes in verse 17, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. And then in verse 22, it says, you see that faith was working with his works, referring to Abraham, using Abraham as, as an example, as an illustration of what he did, his actions. And the description here in this passage says, you see that faith was working with his works, talking about Abraham. And then we come to verse 26 of James chapter 2, and it says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So there is such a thing as a dead faith. This dead faith or non-saving faith only provides a false security. And that's the reason we need to understand the truth of the gospel in saving faith in Christ. We're going to amplify that a little bit more. Paul praised the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. He said, um, I, I praise you for your work of faith and labor of love. Wherever there is faith, there is action. Let me give you an example. In the New Testament, when the woman with the issue of blood was healed, she was healed when she moved and reached out and touched the hem of the garment of Christ. The man who was, uh, let's see, <laughs> was he blind for 30 years or, or crippled for 30 years that he healed? Help me with my illustration. You're not helping me. Uh, he asked the guy if he wanted to be healed. I forget whether he was blind or, or, or crippled. Was it lame? The lame man for 38 years, wasn't it? Do you want to be healed? Well, that's a stupid question to ask somebody who had never walked. And he said, yes. And the Lord healed him. Every time in the, in the Bible where there is faith, there is action. When did the, when did the Red Sea depart, uh, part? When Moses lifted his hand. When did the uh, Jordan River part? Remember when it was overflowing? It's when the priest's toes touched the water. See, Every time in the Bible where faith is, um, where, uh, it, where faith is demonstrated, there's action that goes with it. There's always action with faith. Okay, I've spent too much time on that. Paul recognized that God is the one who is owed thanks because salvation in all its parts is a gift from God. You know the verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Paul admires their true saving faith, which separated them to God from sin. 
Paul was not always praying for them every minute of every day, when, although it says they'll pray for you all the time, pray for you always. It, it, it means that every time he thought of them, he was praying for them on behalf of their faith and demonstrating their faith. The Colossians are faithful brothers in Christ who have put their faith in the Lord of the gospel since they heard since we heard of your faith. See in verse 4, whose faith is it? Well, Paul says in this case, it's, it's your faith. You are faithful brothers in Christ because of your faith. Now, there are those, uh, that who, there are those who would want to distort the gospel and make something else of the gospel or just literally distort it. In, in Galatians 1, 6 and 7, Paul told the church at Galatia, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by, his, by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel. So there are some who would want to twist the gospel and distort it. There are some who want to literally disobey the gospel. 1 Peter 4.17 uh, asks the question, what, what will be the outcome of those who, who do not obey the gospel? <laughs> well, we know the last chapter. We know what's going to happen to those who disobey the gospel. But faith has an object. In verse 4, it says what? Faith in Christ. In contrast to dead faith or non-saving faith, saving faith has its object, Jesus Christ. The relationship of faith, the relationship of faith to Christ Jesus is expressed in the New Testament in various Greek prepositions. Now, in this passage, in different translations, we have a uh, a different translation. I don't know how to say it other than that. Maybe your translation uh, in uh, Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Maybe your translation says in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so my question is, what is it? In Acts 16.31, is it believe in, the, the New American Standard says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. King James Version says uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of your versions will either have in or on. It might be toward, it could, be, could even mean toward, but it wouldn't make good sense. So what is it? Do we believe in Christ or on Christ? The answer is yes. Paul's shaking his head. Yes, it's both and, not either or. We believe on him, in him, toward him, by him, under him, over him, around him, all the way. The whole focus is uh, Christ is the object of faith. Believe in him. See? So, it, so don't get hung up on semantics. Is it on or in? The answer is yes. We believe in him, toward him. Our faith is toward him and because, because of him. The gospel truth is received by faith. Paul talks about the faith of the church in uh, Colossae. And they receive the gospel by faith. Secondly, the gospel, it results in love. Look at verse 4. Second part of verse 4. And the love which you have for all the saints. Genuine faith does not exist in a, in a vacuum, but will inevitably result in a changed life. One of the visible results of true saving faith is love for other believers. Look what it says in verse 4 again talks about the love which you have for all the saints. The 
The Bible speaks of this in many different ways throughout the Bible. In John 13, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if if you have love one for another. A true child of God will love other believers. Faith in Christ purges us of our selfishness. Faith in Christ purges us of, the, of our affinity for sin. The Bible, uh, excuse me, biblical love for others, other believers, does not mean that we feel the same emotional attraction toward everyone. True biblical love is much more than an emotion. It is a sacrificial service to others because they have a need. We show godly love to someone when, this, when we sacrifice ourselves to meet a need of someone else. Jesus gave us the perfect example of that. Let me try to communicate that example. True godly love is illustrated in John chapter 13, and in verse 1, it tells us that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the context here is the washing of feet. Then he showed them what love meant by meeting a basic need in their life by washing the disciples' feet. Now, God does not expect us to feel sentimental toward each other all the time, but he does expect us to serve one another. Now, I'm not going to wash your feet, and you're not going to wash my feet. I've been a part of foot washing in church. Uh, Not only is it humbling, it is very humiliating, especially with feet like mine. I don't know. Do you, do you, have you ever had foot washing, Brother Mike? Yeah, okay, I have. Um, it's an experience, I'll tell you that. Well, it's not an ordinance in the church. You don't have to observe it. It was a good The gospel truth results in love, especially love for the brethren. You see that? Love for the church members. All right, number three, the gospel truth rests in hope. Look in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Hope is a component of the great triad of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And the Bible says the greatest of these is love. Paul describes hope as being laid up in heaven. Our hope is in heaven. Let me see if I can give you a good workable definition of hope. I've heard people say... Well, you Christians have a, have a hope. You just sit back and, and just waiting for something to happen. You're just sitting back and on your laurels and, and you, just, you, just hope, you just hope that heaven's going to come along or you just hope something good is going to happen. Well, the Bible, a biblical hope is different from that. In Titus, it's, this hope is called the blessed hope. And it is called a hope that is laid up for us in heaven. It is something that is sure and steadfast. Biblical hope is not a condition of probability. Biblical hope is sure and steadfast. 1 Peter 1.4 says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who are taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Biblical hope is different from I'm wishing something would happen. It is not a wish. Biblical hope, by biblical definition, 
is not a hope that is defined by the Webster's Dictionary. Biblical hope must be defined by biblical terms and from the Bible. We are to live in light of eternity, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. Like Paul, we set aside our prerogatives, obeying God's will, and disciplining ourselves to win an incorruptible crown. Moses serves as an example of one willing to sacrifice the present for the promises of the future. Moses lived his life in light of eternity. Let me read this passage to you from Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. Brother Moses gives us a classic example of biblical hope. Listen to what the Bible says. Hebrews 11, 24 and 27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward, the reward of heaven. His hope was in heaven, not in the riches of the earth, not in the riches of the palace. He had everything this earth had to offer to him. He lived with princes and princesses and kings and pharaohs. He had everything money had to offer. But the Bible says he knew that there was something more than that. Now, I'm not saying riches are evil. Money is not evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with having it. It's wrong for the money to have you. That's the, that's the problem. Verse, seven, uh, verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And the word him there is capitalized in the translation indicating the Messiah. Seeing him who is unseen. Moses knew that God had something more and better in store for him. A biblical hope. The hope of heaven. Moses forfeited earthly glory and power and instead wound up herding sheep in the desert for his uh, father-in-law Jethro for 40 years. Like Moses, believers look for that hope in heaven. We are to live our lives in light of eternity, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. Our hope is heaven, and it is sure and steadfast as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The gospel truth rests in hope we have the hope of heaven. Well, number four, the gospel truth reaches the world. In verse six, it says, which has come to you, the gospel has come to you, just as in all the world. The gospel is universal. Christianity uh, uh, was not another local religion sect of the Roman Empire. It was not another cult to adversely influence uh, the church at Colossae, Christianity, and uh, Christianity was and is the good news for the whole world. The gospel transcends ethnic, geographical, cultural, and political boundaries. This universality of the gospel is repeatedly emphasized in the scripture. In Matthew 24, 14, it says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. In John 8, 12, it says, Then Jesus began to speak to them, saying, I am the light of the world. In Revelation 7, 9, and 10, it says, For After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tongues and people and, uh, and tribes, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
The spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire foreshadowed the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel truth reaches the world. Number five, the gospel truth reproduces fruit. Look what it says in verse six. Is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it. The gospel is not merely a stagnant system of ethics. It is living and moving and a growing reality. It bears fruit and it increases. Listen to what Hebrews 4.12 says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When the gospel enters the divinely prepared heart, it results in fruitfulness. When God prepares a heart and the gospel comes into that heart, there is a change in that heart and in that person. In Matthew 13, verses 3 through 8, it says, And he spake these things in a parable, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Some fell on uh, rocky places where they had not much soil, and immediately they sprang up, and because there was no depth in, immediately they sprang up because there was no depth in soil. But when the sun had risen, they were, they were parched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And in verse 8, and others fell on good soil and yielded a crop hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. When the gospel falls on a prepared heart, that, that uh, uh, parable illustrates the gospel falling on fertile soil. When the gospel falls on a prepared heart, there is a visible result. There is growth, there is increase, and that is exactly what, what happens. Peter made a comment about this in 1 Peter 2.2. Uh, 2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in, in respect to salvation. The, now the gospel can begin small, but it can turn in to a tremendous spiritual growth. Listen to this parable. Matthew 13, 31. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smaller of all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The gospel is both individual and universal in its aspects. It is both bearing and increasing. When a heart is prepared and the gospel falls on it, there will be change in that life. The gospel, of, the, the gospel truth reproduces fruit. It, it bears fruit and increases. A living gospel is the power that transforms life. Has the gospel of God come into your life? Has the gospel of Christ come to you? Has the gospel of peace come to you? All of these things we've talked about before. When it enters into our heart, something changes. The gospel truth is rooted in grace. Number six. Uh, number six and verse six. Last part of verse six. And understood the grace of God in truth. Grace is the heart of the gospel. It is God's freely giving us the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, which we do not deserve and we cannot earn. 
Christianity contrasts sharply with other religions which assume man can save himself by his good works. Nothing is more clearly taught in Scripture than the truth of God's free grace. You know the verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the grace of God. Acts eleven eighteen says, And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. God gives us grace to be saved. Everybody in here tonight, I'm going to assume, is a Gentile, unless you're a Hebrew. Anybody of Hebrew blood? Okay, then we're all Gentiles. Guess what? God has granted to you repentance. Acts 11:18. God granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Did you know that there's life in that book you have in your hand or your iPad or your phone or your whatever you got? There's life in those words. Did you know that? No other book can do that. God has granted to us repentance that leads to life. Here's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, I think, in Acts 16:14. In my humble opinion, or as my father would say, in my humble opinion, of which I have a very high regard, this is a wonderful passage. I'm going to read it to you. Acts 16, 14. Listen to this. This is about Lydia. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira was selling a, a, a seller of purple fabric. A worshiper of God was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Isn't that something? God just, a prepared heart just opens to the things of God. And God gives us eternal life, a hope of heaven. Well, Paul describes saving grace as the grace of God in truth. And he talks about the genuineness of this faith. It is truly the grace of God. There are some who would want to say other things about the grace of God. Or say something else about the hope that is laid up for us. For the believer. There are some who want to distort God's gospel. Someone, some who want to disobey God's gospel. I've got members of my own family who literally disobeyed. Well, I had to put it in past tense because they're passed away. Now, disobeyed the gospel. I have a relative who went to her grave hating God because God killed her father, who is my grandfather. <laughs> now you know who it is. And she hated God no matter what. And as far as we know, she never came to know God. You just have to leave her in the hands of a merciful and just God. We don't know. But by her own testimony, she hated God. When the gospel comes into a person's heart, it makes a changed heart. God's grace comes to us. Some want to disobey it. Some want to distort it. Well, let's, let me get on. I'm going to run out of time. Number seven, the gospel truth is rooted, uh, rooted, is reported by people. This is very interesting to me. Look at verse seven of our text. Just as you learn from Epaphras, our, be, our uh, what, what did I do? Our beloved bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Quickly, give me a couple of minutes here. I'm going to talk about uh, Epaphras a minute. In this passage, in, in verse 7, we learn that he is a beloved bond servant a f and a 
fellow servant of Christ. And he is going to uh, take a report back to uh, Colossae. Epaphras was with Paul. At this time, he was going to take this letter back to uh, Colossae. So he's described as a fellow bondservant. Maybe your, your translation has a word there, a fellow bond slave. It's actually the word doulos, a, a son doulos, a fellow slave. The second word that is used there, a faithful servant of Christ, is the word diakonos, where we get our word deacon. It's believed that Epaphras was at one time a deacon, and he's called here the servant of Christ. He's also a bond slave and faithful servant of Christ. Although salvation is solely by God's grace, he uses human channels to communicate that grace to others. Now, I want you to skip over in, in your Bible to Colossians 4, the end of chapter 4. There's some more there about Epaphras, and I want to cover these quickly. These, these are important. In Colossians 4, verses 12 through 13, it says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, he was apparently a member of the church there at Colossae, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, also laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfectly fully assured in, the, in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras was this kind of guy. Look at these descriptions. A bond slave of Jesus. A diakonos of Jesus. One who labored earnestly in his prayer. That word labored earnestly is the Greek word agonizomai. Does it sound familiar to you in English? Agonize. He agonized in prayer. He was a special prayer warrior. And this is what he prayed. Hey, you want to know what to pray for your preacher? Here it is right here, look. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Hey, you want to know what to pray for your church? That you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. Now, whenever the word perfect in the Bible refers to a person, it never, never refers to sinless perfection. It means maturity. He, his prayer was that the church would stand in, uh, in maturity uh, before the Lord and growing in the Lord, striving together in the Lord, be complete, have a fully uh, de developed uh, maturity. That's, what, that's the way Epaphras prayed for the church. And look at the, uh, look at the description that Paul gives to this guy. What an example. Paul describes him uh, in verse 13. For I testify for him. Can you imagine the apostle Paul giving a testimony for you? What would he say, what would he say about me? Hey, I'm going to tell you something about Brother Bill. I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you. Hey, you have a deep concern for God's people and for his church. And for those who are in nearby cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis. That was the kind of guy Epaphras was. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may be mature and fully assured of God's will. How many times you try to do something and say, I just don't know God's will about this? If you've done it one time, I guarantee you've done it a hundred. I know. What is God's will for me in this matter? Why don't you get on the phone and call somebody and say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to make a decision. I want, you to, I want you to pray for me that I could have assurance of God's will in a particular matter. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way Epaphras prayed for the church, that they would stand mature and complete and fully assured in God's will. 
Well, the gospel truth is received by faith. The gospel truth results in love. The gospel truth rests in hope. The gospel truth is for the world. The gospel truth reproduce, reproduces spiritual fruit. The gospel truth is rooted in grace. And the gospel truth is reported by people. Every one of you here tonight, the way that you heard about the gospel was from somebody else. Epaphras was the one who was primarily responsible for taking the gospel to the church at Corinth. I only know, one, I only know two people who say they were saved without somebody leading them to the Lord. They said they sat down and read the Bible and were saved. And they were, and they were saved. I believe it. That's rare. Most of you tonight have read the Bible because somebody said to you, you need to read the Bible. <laughs> See? Or you need to come to Christ. Or you sat in a Sunday school class. Or you were in a preaching service. Or you, you had a Christian friend. Somebody told you about the gospel, like Epaphras did, a faithful servant in the gospel. Are we faithful servants in the gospel? Let's be faithful servants in the gospel. The gospel truth. Bow your heads with me, please, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for the truth of the gospel and for all that it means to us in Christ Jesus. The gospel truth and the faith, the love and hope that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that the gospel truth would indeed continue to bear, bear spiritual fruit and increase in our lives, help us to be mature in the Lord, help us to grow in our grace. I pray, Lord, that we could be like Epaphras and someday be a teacher of God's grace and share God's grace, God's gospel with someone else. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for the gift of eternal life you've offered to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.